HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. All right, Thursday, 1 o'clock, and once again, you've tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks, and we're coming to you live from the back of Roberta's in beautiful, balmy Bushwick, Brooklyn. Today, we are on the line with Brian Shad and Shannon Stein of Feeding Crane Farms. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So... You are out in Sacramento. The farm is actually within the Sacramento city limits. Is that correct? That's correct. And uh, we're out in a balmy Sacramento, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, we, we sit right within the city limits. Uh, we've got 14 acres certified organic in the city, and then we've got a further 75 acres just a mile and a half down the road in the county. But we consider ourselves an urban farm and the most urban farm in Sacramento. Nice. So, Brian, I know that the, the that property has been in your family for a while now, but not too long ago you were in India putting in, like, solar light panels. So how um, how did you end up uh, going from there back, back to Sacramento and setting up the farm? Well, I've had a 15-year a hiatus from the U.S. where I've been doing international development projects in India and West Africa. But the farm has been sort of a plan for the last 20 years. It just, all the pieces came into place last autumn in September when I found uh, the first two key members to the team, which is an operations manager and a farm manager. And once that search was finished, uh, we were able to get started. And since then, I've been here for three months at a time, and then I go away and work for three months, and now I'm back for the summer harvest. Nice. But the key has been having the right team. Um, it was all the pieces fell into place. It took 50 years, but it happened. <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and the land that we're operating on has been nothing but pasture land for the last 50 years. And so we're the the aim is to revive this land, and it's it's in a small corridor in Sacramento that traditionally had been agriculture. And since the financial crisis in 2008, it's now peppered with a lot of foreclosed homes. 
So we'd like to see how we can rejuvenate this area um, using agriculture as the economic stimulus. So I know in farming often it's it's not a bad idea to let land lay fallow for a few years to get to give it a break to give kind of microorganisms and other kind of critical structures to the soil a chance to revive or recuperate and it also kind of became an unintended benefit for you guys when you look to pursue organic designation isn't that right That's right so we were able to do our organic certification for both these properties in less than three months, and we're, C- we're CCOF certified. CCOF has also made the process very easy. Once we were able to show historically nothing has been done um, to this land with regards to synthetic inputs and any other pollutants, uh, CCOF were very quick to inspect and uh, help us out. One, one thing I'd like to put a shout-out is, is that CCOF have a partnership with the USDA that actually help reimburse small farms with their organic certification costs. And normally we would have been skeptical of anything like that, but in fact it works and it's true. And so as a result of that support with the CCOF and the USDA program, we were able to do the certification uh, with a 75% cost share um, from CCOF. And this is important for any of the young farmers who want to go the organic road to know is this program does exist, and they do make it very easy for you to access it. It's just not advertised terribly well. That's not too surprising to hear. Um, So (laughs) can you talk a little bit about, you know, there is kind of this language going around about organics, and I want to talk a little bit more um, about an article in the Sunday business section from about a week ago later in the show. But this idea that it's cost prohibitive to pursue organic certification, even if you are practicing organic farming, or that some farmers choose not to pursue organic certification um, for, for other reasons that, you know, I don't think are really that clear to me. And I, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about why you chose to, to pursue the designation and then what are some of the costs involved and, and how, how does that process work? So it was a no-brainer for us to pursue organic certification. Prior to the certification, we were growing and selling crops, but we were doing it all natural because we didn't have the certification. In our philosophy, this is how it should be done. And there is a cost to bear by going organic, and that's primarily in labor. Uh, Input costs can be uh, more challenging, but we've also learned you can go direct to manufacturer on a lot of things, whereas normally you'll just go through a local outlet. And we're able to see um, our input costs then, you know, begin to level out with uh, traditional synthetic inputs. But in terms of it being more expensive, it's more labor-intensive, and we think you can look at that in a few ways. One, we're creating jobs. This has been a key, um, a key part of this, of this initiative we're doing to bring this farm to life here, is to show that there is an economy around local food, and there's, the, there's an economy around organic foods. So labor costs are prohibitive, but what we get out of organic is we get a far higher quality of product. We have a longer shelf life. We're able um, to deliver to our customers on the day of our harvest. So where with the public, they like to know it's organic. With the restaurants, who is our primary trade, they're not so 
fussed about it being organic or non-organic. They want quality. So what we found is that we can actually market what we sell and provide on quality, and then organic is secondary. And that seems to have been the key uh, with, with our sales, is we provide a very good product. And it's a very good product because it's done in accordance with the organic principles. Okay, so I understand, like, operationally, when, when you're actually doing the farming that, you know, the input costs, which would be, uh, you know, fertilizers or, or other, like, what are some of the other inputs that you're talking about? Well, we've had to do a lot of soil amending um, where we are. So our first year uh, input operations were probably higher than usual. So oyster shell various calcium amendments, you know, we use our boar's blood, our feather meal, fish emulsion, but we've had to amend far more than uh, I think a, farmers in a better quality of soil would have had to come, had to start with. We're on what they call hard pan, so we're, we are actually operating on the soil that is cement during the summer and, and sand pits during the winter, <laughs> and it's, it's taking a lot to get it up to spec. Okay. But it's working, and we do think it's working because of the natural inputs and and just preparing this land as we were supposed to. Um, okay. The organic principles. Anything else would have shorter shorter lifespan. Okay, so the inputs, instead of kind of going to the catalog of fertilizers and choosing the mm-hmm. ones that provide the perfect mix for that type of soil, what you guys need to do is assess what type of nutrients are missing and what type of work you need to do rebuilding. And that sounds like there right. is a variety of things that you do to to add to the soil. And those are the higher input costs that you're talking about is just probably because one, the time to figure out what what's the right thing to use and then having to deal with a variety of things versus one kind of stop and shop pickup of, of nutrients. That is, that's what you mean by higher cost. Yeah, we, okay. we, everything is very much custom. And I think that custom is also down to our crop succession. So we hit the ground running here. You know, you have to understand we're eight months old. We broke ground in September, planted our first crops in November and began sales in January. So we haven't even had the luxury of, of prep time. For, for a lot of what we're doing. So even looking at the individual row successions, we can begin to plant the right varieties of produce that are going to help amend while also giving us a product and strengthen that soil for the next product that we'll plant in that space. So in terms of managing our soil quality, and again, using CCOF-approved um, processes and ways of working, it's a lot of micromanagement right now, and we do feel for the next 18 months we're going to be doing that. Luckily, the second property we're taking to production has, has, a, has a very good soil quality and required fewer amendments to start with. Okay. And then the actual process. Now, you said the program that you're working with is reimbursing you for 75% of the, the certification process costs. So what, what are those costs? So it's the big cost. It's the inspection. Um, which is your, you have your registration and you pay your fees just for their documentation review and everything. But the biggest cost is the actual inspection that occurs, and, and that could be in excess of $1,000. So that covers that large cost. 
Okay. The, the, it's a cost share program between USDA and CCUF. And I would imagine the other state certifying uh, organizations would have similar programs in place. Interesting. Um, so one of the other things I wanted you to talk about, because we're hearing a lot about it in the news right now, is you know many parts of the country where ag is like kind of the predominant uh, income stream or a big part of that state's economy, they're having issues with uh, being such a dry year. I know in Nebraska in particular, it's been really hard hit um, by reductions in rainfall and, and that is a huge agricultural state. And I'm wondering, do you have... Uh, on your property, any issues with regards to water access? Are you looking at irrigation? I mean, are you seeing the impact of this and hearing about it from other farmers in the region? Well, we live we live in a drought region where, ironically, just before you called, it was raining. <laughs> uh, it never rains in July in Sacramento, but it did today. Uh, water resources are a huge issue in California. Uh, we've been, most of my life, we've been in drought. Here, we're lucky. We have our own well, and we have free access to our water resources on the farm. And we've installed drip irrigation. So we immediately started with drip, which was a large capital expense for us in the startup, but it seemed the most logical. So water resources for us are are no problem. We don't have a water cost. We do have an energy cost associated with the pumping, but we're looking at installing solar in order to offset that. However, in the region of Sacramento, we do operate in, there is a mix. You have uh, private wells with farmers, but then there's also a water district. And so some land um, parcels fall in a water district in which they have to pay an annual fee to access the irrigation water. Okay. Um, For us, water management is less of an issue. It's a private well. We've put in our own drip systems, and we just run it as need be. We don't even really, the soil is is retaining moisture very well, so I would say we're probably drip irrigating maybe once a week at the moment. We've had a strange summer, though. Yeah, also something you're hearing all over the news with regards to weather. So for people who don't know, can you talk a little bit about what a drip irrigation system is and then what some of the alternatives to that type of system might be? Mm-hmm. So traditionally, in this part of California, any irrigation would be done by large um, field flooding pumps uh, and then small canals. So you typically would have a 30 to 50 horsepower pump that would just flood a field, and you'd run it down a canal. All the fields are graded to slope, and that's that's how you would do tomatoes, zucchini, uh, field crops, feed, all that. Well, what we installed was a drip line. So we have, we run off a seven and a half horsepower pump and pressure tanks and simply run a line, lines down our rows. We can do two drip lines down a row and have four, four types of crops planted in that row. Or we can just run a single line down as we're doing with our winter squash, which is going in now. And the drip, the advantage of the drip is it's far more economical in terms of energy usage. It delivers, we can inject our inputs, our fish emulsion, our other um, nutrients into the lines, and that will deliver the water and the nutrients closer to the roots. Uh, but most importantly, it reduces weeding. <laughs> and when, you, when you're an organic farmer, the biggest pests and weeds are your two biggest challenges. And for labor costs, it's all about weeding. So by using the drip, we're actually starving any potential um, weeds 
outside of where our plants are growing from emerging, which help with some of the labor costs. And also going back to the fact that we have this land that laid fallow for 50 years, the beauty of that is it has the inputs, it was pasture land, you have the manure that's been on it, but the drawback is you have a huge wheat bank um, that's going to take us years to exhaust properly. Okay. So by starving that wheat bank and not using the flood method of, of irrigation, we're reducing our, our labor costs and our weeding requirements significantly. So what type of, um, what kind of produce did you elect to grow and, and how did you guys kind of make that choice? Was it a market demand that you saw a niche for or was it a passion for, you know, particular products or how were the choices made with regards to, to types of production? So I, I spent several years assessing the market on a number of levels in Sacramento. One was looking at restaurants, others looking at retailers, and the third, the farmer's markets. And the gaps we identified was there was a lack of, of high-quality, in-quantity produce available to local restaurants. Um, it was coming through your larger third-party distributors who were trucking it in from, in some cases, several hundred miles away, and it was sitting in cold storage. So we knew that we needed to have some culinary products that chefs would want uh, available to them, ideally with some uniqueness to it that they could play with on the menu. So we went general mixed vegetables to start with, but we looked at having um, those odd, rare heirloom varieties on hand and then the freshness of them for the shelf life. As this evolved, we began to see what our competitive advantage is. So in November, we had garlic as sort of our piggy bank crop. You know, we knew we could put the garlic in the ground. We could process that garlic, smoke it, make black garlic, pickled garlic, and then have it to sell come this coming winter. So other than that, we started with another further two acres, and we went with mixed root vegetables, and we did a salad mix. What we found out very quickly in our first month of sales in January is that our salad mix was flying off the shelves. And we have an ability now to grow very good quality head lettuce and salad mixes, and that's increasingly becoming more and more a focus of our revenues. At the moment, it's 40% of what we sell. So whereas we went in very mixed, we're sort of realizing that we can focus on becoming a premier uh, green leaf producer in Sacramento, which they're mostly down in Salinas. So nobody grows much of that up here. And then in addition to that, we want to focus on the culinary side of things. So there's a number of cooks that are part of this endeavor, and we would like to see what are these heirloom old varieties that we could provide both to the public and educate them on how to cook it. Purple basil's the latest one. Uh, We've been slowly educating our farmer's market customers, and now it's flying off the shelf on what to do with the purple basil because they immediately gravitate to the green. And with the chefs, the conversation we're now having is we'll come to them a season ahead of time, and we'll ask them, what is it you're looking for for your autumn menus? Are there any specific varieties you would like? We can guarantee delivery of that. And, and this has now been evolving that we, we're very much the chef's farm, and we treat that chef as both the home cook as well as your professional cook in a restaurant. And that's how we're marketing ourselves. It's, it's not your bog-standard zucchini or yellow squash that you're going to get from us. It's going to be a little bit more of the funky Italian varieties that you don't see so often, but your grandmother grew in the back garden 
well, my grandmother grew in the back garden. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds lovely. We have to take a quick break, and uh, then we'll bring you back to talk in a little bit more about your work. Great, thank you. Ranch grass-fed beef, pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. We are back. You're listening to The Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network. We are on the line with Brian Chad of Feeding Crane Farm. So there's an S in the name because you have kind of multiple properties that you're farming on. And, and what is the extent of that, like, in the future? Well, so that's there's multiple uh, properties that have been sitting unused for several decades now. There's all together, there's just over 600 acres that we would like to take into production, different mixed-use, livestock, vegetables. And the, the organic certification process is sort of going along each of those parcels individually. So we've done two parcels now, and we'll be doing another third, a third parcel this summer, uh, which will, we have a little bit more plans around education, public destination, and, and some advocacy at that site. Okay, so you're as having, well as the produce stand. So, so you know, you mentioned that you you guys are predominantly selling to to restaurants and have been this the particular plot that you're working on now is known as kind of the chef's farm. I mean, did mm-hmm. you was that the intention going in? I mean, that you didn't want to work with wholesalers or distributors? Did you know that the restaurants were going to be your primary consumer, or how did that relationship evolve? Well, as I went through the business plan development. We knew there was no scope of working with the distributor. It, it hit the margins just too slim uh, to be able to count on as a proper revenue stream. So the restaurants were very much seen as the first revenue stream and the low-hanging fruit in from just getting some cash flow going. And, and then that took off. I mean, quick aside on Sacramento. Sacramento is generally known as as somewhere between San Francisco and Lake Tahoe. And despite that, we actually have a very vibrant culinary scene here in Sacramento and quite a large local food scene that I don't think a lot of people realize. So we knew we could tap into that, and we also knew that we could help support the growth of that uh, local industry here. So that was the thinking of going into the restaurants. After that, we needed to have... Um, some retail presence as well. So we went, again, in line with what we do. We went to the independent markets in Sacramento, and 
thus now have good accounts with two large independent supermarkets here. Farmers' market stands have become an increasingly uh, large part of our activities, and we've now got four markets a week. And I can't underestimate uh, how important these farmers' markets are to local farmers and small farmers. That outlet has proven to be one of our best uh, revenue streams, just in purely supporting our labor costs alone uh, for the weeding and, and whatever seasonal labor we need to bring on. And so the markets, we do hope to expand that, both for the fact that it brings the income in and it's also good visibility. So off the back of the markets then has evolved our CSA uh, scheme that we've set up. So now we've also got as a fourth activity selling direct to the public through a CSA membership. So it sounds like you're starting to yeah diversify the ways that you guys can expect income on the farm. Mm-hmm. And the challenge, and it's that ex- when to expect income. So w- winter and, and early spring are always going to be the lean periods for a farm because of the seasons. Yet summer is really where you want to sort of make your buck and be able to have that to spend over the year. So becoming aware that we're going to have these seasonal peaks and troughs, I'm trying to find what are the best options for revenue that we can then fill in where we get those dips in our seasons. And the next area that we'll go into, which I'm sure you and your listeners know is very difficult, is the value-add side of things. And we're spending a lot of time just navigating the minefield of being able to make food for people other than just grow the food. But as a small farmer, we see that What's going, to make it, what's going to make or break us is our ability to do the value add to what we grow. And federal rules are tough, and state rules are even tougher here in California. And it's going to take us some time to, to, crack, to crack that code, so to speak. So the value-added production would be something like putting, you know, like you had mentioned earlier, you know, pickling or, or smoking mm-hmm. or putting together um, something more more kind of ready to eat with with the garlic mm-hmm. or other products and and I did want to kind of touch on this this New York Times article it was from the Sunday business section July 8th um, by by Stephanie Strom and the title of the article is has organic become um, oversized and she in in the article kind of follows Michael J Potter who is the founder of Eden Foods and and they're talking about organics as being um, this new market for, for big egg and big food because of the premium prices um, that organics can command, they they lead to a premium profit. And, and this seems kind of antithetical to me because most uh, small-scale organic producers that I know don't seem like they're commanding a premium profit, even if they may be commanding a premium price. So I'm wondering, what you know, what am I missing here that, that, is it just economies of scale, or is it the value added, or where is this kind of gap coming in um, that people are able to kind of get rich off of the organic designation? Do you have a sense? I think it's the value added, definitely. If you look at all the products and the brands, there are even a few brands in there that I didn't know were, were um, owned by Big Food. All of those are a value-add product of some sort. And then you have the economies of scale. They have manufacturing capacity. <laughs> They're talking millions of units they can produce in a week, whereas a small farmer who's doing value-add has no manufacturing capacity. All they have is processing capacity. And so, the, Go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, I think, and I, so I, I think it's two totally different things. What's happened is 
you've now got a giant food system in this country that, as any business would do, seized on the fact that there is a new type of product on the scene that people will buy, and people will pay more for it. So any business is going to try to get a share of that. I don't think we as an organic farm are in that sector. Uh, we we are a small local organic farm. Our intentions aren't to be on every shelf in every um, in every grocery store in America. Nor do we even have that capacity. We don't have the distribution. We don't have the manufacturing. We don't have the sales reps. We don't have the existing accounts. It's so easy for someone like Kellogg's to buy a brand and immediately slot that into their existing um, business business structure. So. It's two things. And the other is this, this parsing on the ingredients, for instance. It, you have little, not synthetic, but naturally derived things like the algar that are getting the organic certifications. For us, some of those products, though there's questions as to whether they're organic or not, there's stuff that we may use in our processing. So we have to go through these questions, too. You know, is this what we want to put in? Should this be certified organic, or is it on the national list? So the, the article raised a lot of important questions. I don't feel we're in that space. We can't necessarily charge more to customers because it's organic because they just won't pay for it. And, and customers at our farmer's markets, they're not going to go pay more money for something because it's got dirt on it. You know, they may not actually have more money to pay right now. So, again, we have to go on the quality of our products. What was interesting in that New York Times article was the difference in price that they could command for something like macaroni and cheese, which is exactly the same conventional product, and you're having an inferior size for the organic product, and it's getting 50% more. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the things that the article really brings up for me, too, is this co-opting uh, of language, you know, the language mm-hmm. of kind of small uh, family-run or regionally-based farmers who have kind of depended on being able to say um, certain words like local, like organic, like family farms, and have mm-hmm. those words mean something more and more. Those words often con- conjure an image of, you know, the happy cows that you see on the milk carton, but the reality is often quite different. And so it definitely just, to me, always reinforces this, uh, the wonderful thing about markets, the wonderful thing about um, knowing where your food comes from is you having this direct relationship with, with the people who are are producing the things you eat. And one of the things I wanted to kind of um, touch on before we wrap up is, you know, your family has had this property in the in the region for a number of years, and, and now here you are kind of coming back. And I have to assume that in, in the region there, it must feel a little bit like out of nowhere, you, you know, kind of have a, an overnight farm in the, in the scheme of uh, agriculture where, you know, eight months ago there's no farm there and now there is and you're selling into restaurants and uh, you're on the radio. Um, so how yeah. has the community response been um, in the agriculture world? I mean, have you been fairly well received? Do you have to do some work there um, reaching out and forging those relationships or have people been receptive to, to your approach? I think there's been a lot of bridge building um, from the from the very beginning of this of this startup here. It's I've made it very clear that we're not here to um, push out any of the other local farmers in the market. Again, when I went and did my research, my market research, and I talked to chefs and I talked to 
restaurant people, the issue with local farmers for them and often why they would choose to go with a distributor was on reliability. Uh, able to get the product on time, able to get the quality and the quantity of product that they need and they requested. So we see very much that what we're coming and doing is almost formalizing the relationship between the local producers and the restaurant sector here in Sacramento by aggregating with them. You know, if, if a farm down the road can runs out of head lettuce, then at least they can come to another farm and get head lettuce as opposed to calling into a distributor. There is room for everybody here in Sacramento uh, and in Northern California to be working together as small farmers. And the next thing we would like to actually see is, is better collaboration amongst the different producers. So, for instance, an example of what we've done, we thought about growing mushrooms here. We've got a number of dark rooms in the barn, really perfect for setting up some mushroom-growing facilities. Well, there's a producer here in Sacramento who produces absolutely phenomenal mushrooms, and there's no point in reinventing the wheel. So rather than competing with them, what we've done is gone into a joint marketing relationship, and we'll be offering their mushrooms in our CSA as an add-on, and we're looking for other producers that are very good at what they do so that we can actually open them up to our market. Restaurants that we supply that the mushroom producer doesn't supply will be able to provide that on our list now. And the restaurants that they're in, who we're not in, they're going to help work with us in order to get into those restaurants. And that's, that's the philosophy by which um, we would like to work in Sacramento. Soilborn Farms, who is an urban farm education trust that does a lot of advocacy and has a 40-acre organic farm here in the Sacramento region, in the, in the county, you know, we recruited our farm manager from their apprentice program. We've recruited a second farm assistant from their program. And they, too, have restaurant contracts. We sell in the same markets. We're even selling in some of the same supermarkets. And what we've begun to do is we'll even trade product or we'll buy product from them and put it in our CSA or they'll buy product for us if they're short on something. So you do see a dynamic beginning to emerge. And my hope is that any animosity that may surface is immediately eliminated by that dynamic. We all talk. We're a community. And in fact, I was just talking to Shannon about it this morning, of how this small farmer movement that, that is occurring across this country, I just saw another New York Times article from the 1st of July about it, that community needs to come together. And it really needs to come together you know, in a way, as small farmers, not necessarily a large farm industry association. It is these small farmers. There's a lot of 20-somethings and 30-somethings out there doing exactly this. And how we can begin to unite together, both in the cities or the areas we operate in around nationally, I think is the next challenge for all of us. We're too busy to talk to each other, <laughs> if, you know, anything. Yeah, I, I, I think that you brought up a lot of really wonderful points there. And if people want to follow up, I know that the website is still being built out, but they can uh, they can reach you at info at feedingcranefarms.com. Is that correct? That's correct. And we have a Facebook fa page, which is Feeding Crane Farms, that is acting as our um, website proxy for the time being. 
Nice. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I really appreciate having you on. And it was great to get to hear a little bit more about how you've progressed. And I'll be excited to check in uh, you know, next year when your farm is twice as old as it is now. <laughs> thank you, Aaron. That would be wonderful. <laughs> um, thanks and- also to uh, Jack for engineering today's show. You can always find archived episodes of The Farm Report on heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes as a podcast. Remember, we're live every Thursday at 1 p.m. And if you have any questions for the show, you can email us. It's info at heritageradionetwork.org. See you next week, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. HeritageRadioNetwork.org is dedicated to providing the most up-to-date information and news on the food industry. Interviews with chefs and in-depth pieces on food systems take listeners literally from the farm to the fork. Can you hear this anywhere else? Nope. Press the donate button on our website and learn how you can become a founding member and support the station.